As this disease, as you say, is ripping through China, they are now opening up the doors to Chinese leaving country for tourism. And they are not sharing sequencing. Is the COVID-19 variant spreading in China Omicron, or is it something else? And what does the explosion of the virus and the associated real death toll in China really mean for Xi Jinping? the author of China's draconian zero-COVID policies. It's not just COVID, it's not just the economy. We are seeing the Communist Party move in a different direction from Xi Jinping. Today I sit down with China analyst Gordon Chang to discuss the complicated realities the Chinese regime is facing. Why is the CCP collecting DNA profiles of Americans? Why are CCP-linked companies buying up land next to U.S. military bases? And is an attack on Taiwan imminent? I don't know what's going on in Xi Jinping's head, but I do know that he's engaged in the most rapid military buildup since the Second World War. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year. And Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Gordon Chang, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Well, thank you, Jan, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Gordon. It's a very strange new year in communist China right now. CCP virus, or SARS-CoV-2, um, is running rampant through China right now. And uh, I guess I want to get your take here on how we got here, because we didn't really know about this until about a month ago, or perhaps a little longer. Well, if we go all the way back, this does look like it was an engineered pathogen. Um, but that is a long conversation. But we do know something, and it does set a context for where we are today. And that is, whether this was an engineered pathogen or not, China turned it into a biological weapon. They lied about contagiousness. They knew that it was highly transmissible human to human. But for three weeks in January 2020, and maybe even the last week of December of 2019, they told the world it was not. And then while they were locking down their own country later in January, they were pressuring other countries to take arrivals from China without travel restrictions or quarantines. You put those two things together, and it means they deliberately spread this disease beyond its borders. The reason why we need that context is because we're seeing something similar today. As this disease, as you say, is ripping through China, um, they are now opening up the doors to Chinese leaving country for tourism. And they are not sharing sequencing. 
They're not telling the world what's actually going on in China right now. So yeah, we think it's some sort of Omicron variants, but what we're reduced to doing is taking the wastewater out of planes that arrive in our country and in others, and then trying to get the genetic material out of that. That's entirely wrong. I mean, if China is doing this again, and it's clear that they are, then we should not be allowing arrivals in, from China until we know what the devil is going on. No, and that makes a lot of sense. But again, it would seem so odd to the typical layperson when we know this virus is, as you say, ripping through. I mean, there was this long, long period of various forms of lockdown policies. We saw Australia try to do it. We saw New Zealand try to do it. But as they say, virus is going to virus, and the virus has basically has to kind of go through the population. And from what we understood, this, the virus is already starting to really build and start going through the population before the CCP officially offered the lockdowns, uh, lifted the lockdowns, and then also, you know, there were these protests. So there's kind of multiple things going on. Maybe you can shed light on how these things interact. Yeah. From about the last week or so in October, and especially after the November 24 fire in Oromuchi, the Chinese people um, participated in these extraordinary protests. In October, it was in the central part of China, in Zhengzhou, at what is known as iPhone City, um, a factory which builds more than half the world's iPhones. Workers just wouldn't put up with it. So they were scrambling over fences, they were escaping through fields. And what was really important was that the people who are, uh, lived around there helped the workers flee. And by helping the workers flee, they put themselves at great risk. But what was really fascinating was after the November 24 fire, um, it was clear from the videos that fire trucks couldn't get to the scene of the apartment building because of barriers that had been put in the streets because of COVID. And also people couldn't get out of their apartments in the burning building because they had been shut in from the outside for quarantine purposes. And then you had those protests across China, north, south, east, west. These were spontaneous. There was no organization, no coordination, no leadership. And really what frightened the Communist Party was People were saying, oh yeah, of course they didn't like the COVID lockdowns, but they were saying, down with Xi Jinping, down with the CCP. And that means that the mood was revolutionary. Um, and in the face of that, that was one of um, four reasons that I think that uh, the Chinese leadership on December 7th just abandoned zero COVID, which was the most draconian set of lockdowns in the world. And just all of a sudden, like that, they disappeared. That's because the Chinese people wouldn't put up with it. But there were other reasons. Well, yeah. So a second reason, actually, is that the virus was already kind of getting out of control despite these lockdowns, as is, you know, many epidemi epidemiologists that I've spoken with have said is basically something inevitable, especially with a respiratory virus, a coronavirus. So um, it's almost like they had no choice. But tell me what you think. Yeah. The World Health Organization actually said that... Um, the virus was surging through China before the um, lockdowns were lifted on December 7th. So that they were saying the lifting of the lockdowns didn't cause the surge because it was already there. Um, and when you start looking at the data, which we're starting to get, we're seeing that they really were um, infections. And, and now it is just completely out of control where you have, um, you know, on December 20, from those leaked minutes of China's National Health Commission, um, almost 37 million people were infected in one day. That's 2.6% of the Chinese population one day. Um, 
People estimate somewhere between five and 7,000 um, fatalities a day, and this has not peaked um, because the modeling suggests it'll peak sometime in the third week of this month, and then there'll be another wave in March. Um, so, you know, this disease, just as you say, viruses got to virus, and the Communist Party's draconian lockdown just could not stop this. Well, I want to mention one thing. So because the virus has gone through many populations in the West, um, you know, for example, in the U.S., the estimate is there's about 90% natural immunity people have already been exposed before, and that provides some level of protection. Um, you might get the virus again, but it's not, not going to be near as severe. Uh, but in China, because of these lockdowns, and I don't for a second believe the official numbers that they right, had, of course. of course, there was a lot more death. But, but, but to, at some level, they did actually stop it, but that created this huge immune deficit now. So we are seeing, you know, again and again, this for the last three weeks, steady pace of these huge lineups at crematory. I mean, there's a significant death happening, and there's a lot of debate about whether this is real. You yeah, know. well, um, it, it is real. I mean, we can see from those videos that these just in city after city, um, the crematoria are just, uh, the lines are backed out a, a kilometer or so. In Shanghai, people were burning their relatives, their corpses of their relatives on the street. So uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen unless this is absolutely real. And this means, you know, um, when you, when you look at it, Communist Party policy was a failure. You know, there's this notion that goes back to Mao, and Xi Jinping shares it, that communism can do anything. So, you know, Mao talked about conquering nature. Well, Xi Jinping obviously thought he could conquer the disease, and eventually the disease um, conquered communism. And we saw um, the Communist Party, despite its great efforts, was not able to stop this. And that's why we're having just unfolding tragedy in China right now. Well, and not only that, but she put his personal seal of approval behind these lockdown policies. Now, tell, that is very significant. Tell me about that. Yeah, uh, Xi Jinping is known to be the author of Zero COVID. When he gave his work report, which was that nearly two-hour speech on October 16th, which opened the Communist Party's 20th National Congress, he doubled down on Zero COVID. Um, but it he failed because starting November 11th, you had that sort of one announcement, which people took to be a sort of a minor adjustment in zero COVID. Um, but it really didn't, wasn't really implemented. It wasn't until December 7th. And then there was a complete repudiation of Xi Jinping's policies. But what's fascinating is that this occurs at the same time that we're seeing his other policies, domestic ones, are now being repudiated. So the Communist Party and the State Council held its Central Economic Work Conference, and they didn't mention common prosperity, which is Xi Jinping's signature program for the economy. So there's, you know, it's, it's not just COVID. Um, it's not just the economy. We are seeing the Communist Party move in a different direction from Xi Jinping. And, and this is striking because, you gotta remember, at the 20th National Congress, we're talking the middle of October, you know, Xi Jinping gets his precedent-breaking third term as general secretary, and everybody says, oh, you know, he's gonna be president for life. Well, I don't think so, or his life's gonna be pretty short, one or the other. The problem is that even in the middle of October, we could see that as Xi Jinping was cementing his control over the top of the Communist Party, the Communist Party was losing control over Chinese society. Now Xi Jinping is losing his control over the party, and you have to conclude that the country looks a little volatile and looks unstable. 
You know, I want to catch up a little bit. You mentioned there were four reasons. So we have, of course, you know, the, the lockdown policies themselves um, and the virus basically surging despite that. And you also have these protests. What were the other two? Okay. The other two were that municipalities were responsible, financially responsible for zero COVID, which was extremely expensive to implement because mm. we have these lockdowns. We have the contract uh, tracing. We have daily testing, sometimes more than once a day testing for COVID-19. And, and municipality, municipalities had to pay for it. Even Beijing, as rich as it was, was running out of money to implement zero COVID. So they, they just didn't have the cash. Um, but also um, you have the Chinese economy starting to contract or going deeper into contraction. Um, so there you have those two other reasons that it was just not possible anymore for the party. They just didn't have the resources to do it and they could see the country's economy was failing. So when you add that, that the policy wasn't working, as we talked about, and as the protests were occurring, as we talked about, those four reasons are essentially the Communist Party didn't change its policies on December 7th. It just capitulated to the disease. This is the collapse of Communist Party policy. I really want to talk about the economy more. And, you know, and we've certainly seen in the West the devastating consequences of these types of policies. So we know, we know that even Communist China, they have all sorts of tricks under, in their sleeves, but they can't escape that. I want to talk a little bit about these. You were talking about the Politburo, the, the top, top cadres. So, you know, there seems to be a significant number. So let, let me qualify this. In case anyone isn't aware, COVID has this huge gradient. The greatest risk by far from COVID for people is, is of people of very older age or immune suppressed uh, situations people and like so me. forth. <laughs> no, I don't, hardly. <laughs> but um, to make a long story short, there's, there seems to be a disproportionate, even knowing this, there's a disproportionate number of high-level cadres which have just simply passed away. And we've been actually covering this because we were very interested in all those people here at Epoch. So, you know, what are you seeing there? Yeah, well, that, it's true. Um, you have a lot of senior officials um, succumbing to COVID and we don't know. Um, I have heard a lot of rumors. The rumor that makes most sense to me is that uh, senior cadres get preferential access to organ transplants. When you have an organ transplant, you have um, all sorts of drugs to suppress the immune, immune system of the body. So these people are immune compromised. And we know that COVID attacks the immune compromised. Uh, I can't say this, I, you know, but it, it makes sense to me that this is what's going on. But whatever it is, um, it does look disproportionately that senior Chinese leaders are, are dying from the disease. It's, it's very interesting, right? And basically, I'll frame this a little bit. So I'm just remembering this, uh, some of the first reporting I did on the organ industry in China back in 2006, when I realized there was this whole murder for organs reality happening, you know, unfathomable, right? Horrific. But horrific, absolutely horrific. And so I'd interviewed a David Kilgore, who had been doing research, very, you know, research on this. He had interviewed a Taiwanese national who had gone to China, had a rare antibody condition, and the guy had gone on two trips and had been fitted with a total of eight kidneys across something like six months 
um, because of this rare condition, they kept being rejected. So finally, the eighth one held. But you can just imagine the reality there. So th when you were talking about these cadres getting preferential treatment, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. Yes, and, and this has been, uh, you know, when we first heard about this, um, you know, going back, what, 15 so or so years, people were saying, oh, no, no, it can't be right. Um, but we've got, since that time, more and more evidence that there is the murder, um, that people are being murdered for organs. Um, and China has set up the infrastructure for that with mobile organ units and, and all the rest of it. And, and it's on, in China that you can get an organ on demand where you have to wait years in the United States, for instance, for a kidney to get a match. Um, so yes, it's happening. Um, and it is one of the crimes against humanity that the Communist Party is committing. And I just want to highlight that this on-demand idea, imagine you can, and if you're a high-level cadre in the Communist Party of China, there's nothing that is off the table for you. Almost, yeah. Right? And, yeah, and and you know the question is, well, why do they do all this DNA testing of everybody, especially Uyghurs and Kazakhs and other Turkic minorities? Um, why do they do this on on uh, prisoners? Um, and it's because people are being killed on demand for organs. And matched, I think that's what and you're matched, suggesting. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just unbelievable reality we have. You know, I think about two weeks ago we had the head of Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting on the show. Uh, I'll recommend our viewers to check out that episode if you want to know more about this this harsh reality. Um, let's jump to this. Um, there's been multiple multiple reports from doctors that we have verified that show that some of these people are actually dying with this what's called kind of white lung, which sort of is reminiscent of the original or Delta strains of COVID. And it's just kind of interesting, but there isn't, the, the, as you pointed out earlier, there's no good data coming out of China. We can't trust any of it. But so you're kind of watching these patterns and we are seeing multiple doctors that we've verified that are saying that people have died of this, you know, what seems to be something that would look like an earlier version of the virus, but we don't, we don't know, of course, right? Well, because yeah. China's health authorities are not sharing information. We don't even know if COVID is the only disease that is going through China right now. We just do not know. We make assumptions because, you know, but we don't know. And that's why I think that the world needs to close its borders to China until they start sharing data. Because without sharing data, we can't protect ourselves. Well, and so isn't it so bizarre, like the China, I need you to speak on this, okay? But they're demanding that Chinese be let to, out to any country possible. And, you know, they're, they're kind of enforcing this kind of reciprocity where if you don't do that, well, we won't let you in either. In this reality of COVID surging through China, what's going on in their minds? I mean, this is just Chinese arrogance. I mean, what they're saying is that they, they object to these testing requirements, that, that Chinese travelers get a negative test before they board a plane. Well, do you need that to go to China? Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, just Tuesday or so, the foreign ministry said, well, we're going to impose, quote unquote, countermeasures on countries that impose travel restrictions on China arrivals. I mean, it's just Chinese arrogance that they get to set what they want to do. You can't defend yourselves. That's why China is too dangerous to deal with. And whether we're talking about COVID or talking about something else, we cannot have relations with China as long as it's ruled by the Communist Party because the Communist Party, just by its inherent nature, is malicious. And we've got to defend ourselves, and we're not. 
There's, I had a, a Dr. Asim Malatra on this program not too long ago, and he had a phrase, this isn't for the Communist Party, but I immediately thought of the Communist Party when he said it. Um, he called, he was talking about a psychopathic entity, okay? And I mean, I, I thought this is actually, I think I, I think I know the original psychopathic entity. I mean, or maybe not the original, but, but, but one that's been around for quite a while. And I, I, I don't think people grasp this. Yeah, well look, the Communist Party is responsible for more deaths than any other organization in history. You know, Mao Zedong, people, don't know exactly how many people he killed, but you know, the minimum is 20. Most people say the minimum is 30. Other people say, well, on the upside, you're talking 50, 60, or 70 million people, unnatural deaths. That's from the Great Leap Forward, Cultural Revolution, and his assorted other murderous activities. Well, take a look at Xi Jinping. Right now, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, you have 6.7 million deaths um, from COVID. Um, worldwide. Uh, China accounts for only 5,000 of those because that's their number. As obviously, it's more, but that's what goes into the Johns Hopkins number is what China tells them. So we're talking Xi Jinping's toll from coronavirus alone, 6 point, you know, 6.69999 million deaths. Those are the deaths outside of China. Um, which this disease should have never left central China, but Xi Jinping made sure that he would do it. So each of those deaths is a murder. And, and this is more than just COVID. It's fentanyl, it's all the other stuff that they've been doing. So this is murderous activity. This is, this is a psychopath. It's a psychopathic regime. That's the nature of the regime. You take a good person, you put him into it, he becomes a psychopath, or she becomes a psychopath. I want to, you know, in this vein, I can't help but remember that there is this huge age gradient in risk in COVID, right? And, you know, the, I, I'm not actually sure of the reality because I've, I've heard different numbers and I don't know what to trust exactly, but it's either that, you know, the elderly people in China have a much lower level of vaccination or because we know that the Sinovac vaccine isn't particularly effective. So, you know, if they had it, it would have waned by now because there's been quite a bit of time. So there's, there's going to be a disproportionate number, assuming that it's COVID, of course, right? There are a lot of assumptions, but there's going to be a disproportionate number. And there, and there isn't natural immunity as right. nearly to the extent. So there's going to be a lot of older people dying, right? And the, 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 the terrible conclusion that I came to, and I'm curious what you think about this, is that you know because of the one-child policy, because of this huge demographic hole that the CCP has cr created for itself and its psychopathic nature, it's kind of almost convenient for the CCP to lose some of the older population. Like, and this is the kind of things that they would be thinking. Yeah. Well, now that you mention it, um, the most conspiratorial theories of what China did in 2019 and 2020 come from the Chinese themselves, and one of those theories are that. Um, Xi Jinping wanted to test out his biological weapon. The other theory that you'll hear is that they wanted to kill off old people because it would be good for the age distribution in Chinese society. I don't agree with either of those. I think those are too far flung, but that's what the Chinese people say. Um, so I think that we have to be, you know, you know you, you're just mindful that this is a society where obviously there's no trust of the regime. Uh, and that's what people there think. As I said, I don't think so. I think this was a accidental leak from a biological weapons lab. The circumstantial evidence points to that. 
The other theory is zoonotic transfer. No one's been able to document the links from bat to intermediary mammal to humans, even after all this time. So I think, yeah, it's that. But the point is, um, the effect is, you know, you go back to the Black Death in Europe um, and what happened after it. You know, you have this flourishing of European society because it killed off so many people. Chinese leaders, they, they look at uh, our histories. Who knows what they're thinking? I don't think they're, I think these guys are malicious in the extreme. I don't think that they're capable of that. Um, but the point is, we know that they murdered a lot of people, six point, almost 6.7 million people. But I guess, you know, I'm, okay, so you're talking to this very high level CCP planner, and he's like, oh, isn't it interesting that this is, you know, as we know, killing all sorts of older people, and we have this huge demographic problem. I mean, my, my point is that in this view of the world, human beings are kind of protoplasm. They're not seen as individual, valuable beings. Yeah. Right? Communism believes that, you know, that there is a dynamic to history, that there is an overarching purpose, um, and that societies have to get there. Humans are not important in that um, because it's history. It's determinism. Um, so it's, and also in order to enforce um, equality, um, you have to kill people. It's, there's no coincidence that the Chinese flag is blood red. It is specifically meant to signify blood. And that's in the nature of the regime. So, you know, whether these crazy conspiratorial theories from the Chinese are right, which I don't think they are, but the point is, yeah, communism kills a lot of people and often um, intentionally killing. Let's pivot to the economy. You know, we were talking about, you know, the kind of terrible impacts of these, you know, rolling lockdowns for, for however many years. The Chinese Communist Party is saying that there's still significant growth, less than normal. Um, you mentioned you think there's a contraction happening. So explain to me the reality around the Chinese economy right now. I, I think that certainly from the numbers we've seen um, in the fourth quarter of last year, um, it's, there's no, I think, reasonable basis to say that the economy expanded. But, and that's largely COVID. Um, but you need to put some context in this. And, and that is, you go back to 2008. You have the great downturn. Um, you have um, the United States, a lot of free market economies take their medicine. They don't take as much medicine as they should, but they take medicine. They go through the cycle. China decided it wasn't gonna do that, so it went through the biggest stimulus program in history, um, just pouring money into all sorts of projects. To give you some dimension of it, in 2008, Chinese economy was less than the third the size of America's. But from 2009 to the following four years, they created an amount of debt um, which was basically equal to uh, the, uh, the amount of debt in the United States. You know the the credit running through the banking systems. So they blew up their banking system. Now, of course, they created growth, but eventually it creates a point where um, economies become exhausted. They start to get a debt crisis. They worry about it. So you then get to September uh, 2020, where the Chinese uh, leadership puts the brakes on the property sector. Property sector is important. It's somewhere between 25 to 30% of gross domestic product, depending on how you count it. And it's really important because about 70% of the wealth of the Chinese middle class is in property. So it's a critical sector. Um, then you have Evergrande, um, which was once the largest property developer in China, then the second largest. And it, it uh, defaults. And then you have rolling defaults through the property sector. 
And so that is obviously going to cause um, not only a diminution in growth, it's going to cause a contraction in the economy. Now we're starting to see it. Trade is being hit because of demand around the world is down, because of uh, supply chain disruptions in China, making China less desirable as a factory floor. Um, the trade numbers for November were disastrous. Something like exports were down, I think, 8.7% or something like that. But more important, imports, which showed domestic demand, were down 10 point something. Mm. Um, and then at the same time, retail sales are down. Um, the, they're starting to get December numbers. Um, the, uh, you know, the December numbers are negative as well. This is an economy that is getting smaller. I think it was it gotten smaller if you look at all of 2022. Xi Jinping a couple days ago says, oh, it grew at least 4.4%. That's crap. I mean, it's just China's economic numbers are becoming as unreliable as their COVID numbers. This unreliability in numbers, it seems to be a theme, right? But it's just we have to remember, remind ourselves that because even, you know, institutions like John Hopkins give them credibility. Yeah, um, right? everybody does. I mean, all the news organizations report, oh, China grew 5.4% last year. And they're just basing it on what... Beijing is saying, and that number gets fed in. Um, yeah, but these numbers don't make sense. They do all sorts of statistical tricks, um, and then they, they just out and out lie. And I think that we're starting, you know, especially with the COVID fatalities, um, you know, they're reporting like 12, 13, 14 fatalities for the entire month of December, something ridiculous like that. Even China's friends can't justify this anymore. The reason this is important for people here is that when you hear, oh, China's still growing, you know, despite they had all these challenges, there are these lockdowns, all this stuff, but look, we've still got 4.4% growth. And there's still huge amounts of cash flows from, you know, huge investment coming from the West into China, even given all the realities that you just described. It's this amazing place that you have to invest in. How is that? It mystifies me. I, I, I think part of it is the, the foreign money that goes into China's equity markets is hot money. It flows in, it flows out. Um, the money actually going into um, direct foreign investment, um, I think, is down. And the, China says its numbers are up, but that doesn't seem right. Um, because we have witnessed, especially since about the middle of, of 2021, um, companies starting to diversify their supply chains which means they're not investing in China as they did, or they're in some cases just out and out disinvesting from China. So um, the supply chains issues, you know, companies I think are not fooled. Um, there's always a, you know, a quick buck that people in the financial markets wanna make, but then again, that money comes right out again. So um, I get distressed by it, um, but um, you know, I realize that eventually the the market reality per will prevail. Well, you know, you have a recent piece talking about, and I can't believe we're still talking about this because I, we, I first talked, found out about this in 2019 and was just shocked, is the military thrift savings plan is investing not only in Chinese state companies, but in Chinese military companies. And if that isn't, I don't know, 
ironic, maybe is the term. It's worse than ironic, but this is still happening. Yeah, the thrift savings plan is the federal government's sort of it's the 401 plan for federal employees. And since 2001, it's been opened up to members of the military, which means they can invest in the various units that the thrift savings plan sponsors, like their mutual fund window. And um, if you look through all of the investments of the Thrift Savings Plan, TSP, you'll find companies that are on the Commerce Department's entity list. In other words, Americans can't do business with these companies without getting a license from the Commerce Department, but you can invest in them. That's nuts. Um, but, you know, I, the, the thing here is that we got to remember that the communist system is very different from ours. And, you know, Tr President Trump banned investment into 31 Chinese military-linked companies, and that's a good start. But we got to remember that all Chinese companies are military-linked because of the nature of the Communist Party system. Communist Party gets to do whatever it wants. That's why they have this doctrine of military-civil fusion, which means that everything that a civilian, nominally civilian institution has, is available to the Chinese military. So we should be banning investment into all Chinese companies um, because it is one system. It is a very different system from ours. We tend to think that China's just like us, except they've got better food. No, it's not. They've got a Communist Party system, which is top down. Well, and just to go back to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, you know, given what you've said and with this knowledge, it's just obvious that the Wuhan Institute of Virology had military applications going there. Like there's, there's no scenario where that would not have been the case, well, right? Well, just, you yeah. know, after the, the problems there um, in, uh, what, 2020, February um, 2020, what does China do? Well, it sends its top biological weapons expert, Major General Chen Wei, to clean up the place. And that's her task, is to clean up the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So, yeah, I mean, whether it's nominally military or not, it is military. And so we can see it from everything. Um, and we can also see what the Chinese themselves are saying about their own military research into pathogens. They call them specific ethnic genetic attacks. In other words, they're developing pathogens that will leave the Chinese immune and sicken and kill everybody else. So, yeah. And this isn't, this isn't a conspiracy theory. No, this comes yeah. from the Science of Military Strategy, which is the authoritative publication of the National Defense University of China. You go back to the 2017 edition of the Science of Military Strategy, there it is. They're talking about specific ethnic genetic attacks. So these guys are doing it. That's why they're hoovering up the world's DNA. You want to find the biggest collection of DNA profiles of Americans? You're not going to find it in this country. It's in China. And we've allowed the Chinese to um, buy it up, steal it, whatever. So this is on us. You know, the civil military fusion doctrine that you're talking about, it becomes very relevant when, you know, I was just reading your, your recent piece about that. Actually, it was one of the most popular opinion pieces on the Epoch Times site for a little while. Oh, thank you. Um, but basically, there is yet another example of a large Chinese company setting up beside, right beside a U.S. military base, which has some inc incredibly sensitive operations. And CFIUS, which is this body that's supposed to prevent things like this from happening, has nothing to say about it. So tell me about this. Yeah. Um, Fufeng, which is the U.S. subsidiary of a Shandong-based agribusiness uh, giant, um, bought 370 acres within 12 miles of Grand Forks Air Force Base. At the Grand Forks Air Force Base, they've got two primary functions. 
They've got uh, maintained links to drones, and they have uplinks to satellites. So Fufeng wants to build the $700 million corn milling facility, and that's the perfect place to hide passive listening devices. So they can sort of steal signals. But it it's, goes beyond that, and that is that's a perfect place to um, be able to put devices to disrupt our drone and satellite communication links. And the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is a Treasury Department-led interagency task force, decided it did not have the authority to block the purchase of the 370 acres. What they did was they looked at um, the Defense Production Act of 1950, which is where they get their statutory authority. Land purchases are not covered. It gets even worse than this. And, and it, actually, their statutory reading is correct. In 2018, they amend CFIUS's enabling legislation to be able to block land purchases for national security reasons. And they then have a list of military facilities that people can't buy land near. Well, guess what? They did not include Grand Forks Air Force Base. So this is something which is just, how could they let this happen? This is, as a friend of mine says, just regulatory and legislative malpractice. But there's a solution here, and this is where the American people come in. I agree, CFIUS does not have the legislative authority to block that purchase of land. But the President of the United States has the authority. He has enormous authority under two pieces of legislation. There's the International Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977, or in the alternative, there's the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917. President Biden can use his authority under either of those two pieces of legislation to block the sale of land. And by the way, he hasn't done it. I know that it's just, just so incomprehensible. It leaves you speechless. <laughs> the rhetoric around the Chinese Communist Party or the understanding, seeming understanding of even to some extent the foreign policy establishment around the China threat has, in, has changed over the last five, you know, seven years. It's been very stark to me. But, you know, looking at all this, I can't help but think that we haven't really shifted in our approach. And the threat of the Chinese Communist Party you know, I just had, we just had Cleo Pascal on the show recently talking about comprehensive national power and how the CCP is hell-bent on beating the U.S. in every measure, right? And, you know, but we're, we're, we don't seem to be doing too much to prevent this from happening. We're taking little steps, uh, which are obviously inadequate um, and which are not being... There's just, it's not taken with the sense of urgency that the situation demands. I mean, we have an Oval Office, we've got a Pentagon, both senior civilian officials like Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and the three and four stars that don't have a sense of urgency. And I think that they do not comprehend the nature of China's system, um, and they're getting it wrong. And what they're doing is they're actually making our military now less able to confront China. Uh, because what they, what they believe is, if there's a war with China, the reasoning goes, it won't happen until 2027, at the earliest. Or it probably won't happen until the middle of next decade. So what they're doing is they're retiring cruisers, they're retiring America's most capable plane, the F-22, because they want to pay for the modernization of the fleet and the modernization of our air wings. Um, 
And yeah, I can understand that, but the threat of China, I believe, is now. Whatever it is, there is a lack of a fundamental appreciation of what China's doing. I don't know what's going on in Xi Jinping's head, but I do know that he's engaged in the most rapid military buildup since the Second World War. We know that he's trying to sanction-proof the Chinese regime. We know, and this is the most ominous, he is actually mobilizing China's civilians for war. So he's preparing for war. How, how, tell me more about how he's doing that, this, the mobilizing okay. of civilians. The beginning of um, 2021, um, amendments to the um, national defense law went into effect, which took powers away from the state council, which is a civilian unit, and gave it to the Central Military Commission of the Communist Party, which runs the military. And these were powers for mobilizing China's civilians for war. But it's not just sort of giving themselves legal authorization to do this stuff. Um, a Chinese entrepreneur last July told me, and, and this guy has factories, he makes medical products for the civilian sector. He told me that Chinese Communist Party cadres came to him and demanded that he convert his production lines to make stuff for the Chinese military. And he said that he was not the only one who got these demands. Um, in fact, that there were so many um, factories now that were under these demands that factory owners just fled. The Communist Party is actually operating factories that once were owned by private entrepreneurs because the owners said, we're not sticking around for Xi Jinping's war. Um, so uh, that's, that's what they're doing. I mean, and they're doing other things, of course. But the point is these guys are ready to go to battle. I can give you a lot of good reasons why China won't go to war, but they are from the perspective of the American mentality. Um, when you start putting yourself in their position, I think that we have to understand that they are prepared to go to war for reasons which make a lot of sense if you're a Communist Party senior official. They make no sense to us, but then again, that doesn't matter. I want to touch on one thing. As you're describing, you know, mobilizing the civilian population for war, you know, I, I, I can't help but think of this, the commercial fishing fleet, right, of the... The little of blue the men. Chinese, the little, little blue men, yes. Okay, so Which is what uh, I, I didn't even yeah. realize that that's what they were called. It makes yeah. perfect sense. Um, but so, so this is a great example of civil military fusion, one. And two, um, you know, they've actually been employed, and this is a, a huge population. And you can imagine, you know, what sort of a role these commercial fishing boats would play, for example, in a Taiwan invasion or something like that. Yeah, these—they're called little blue men because their fishing trawlers are painted with blue hulls, and they are given additional money for gas, uh, fuel, um, by the military and they're given uh, military radios, and they act in coordinated fashion. Um, and we have seen this, and, and their actions have actually taken the lives of South Koreans, um, for instance. Um, you know, they, they move into a country's exclusive economic zone, um, which under the UN Conventional Law of Sea, to which China's a party, you know, is that band of territorial water between 12 and 200 nautical miles where only the coastal country can exploit the economic resources, in other words, fish. Um, and the Chinese just move in there, um, and they do it in coordination. And they get support from the White Hulls, which are the Coast Guard, and from the Gray Hulls, which is the Chinese Navy. So yeah, that's a, it's effectively um, part of the military. I mean, so this, again, this sort of paints this 
picture of you know over the 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 kind of coordination i suppose this is the thing that uh i suppose some people in the west are envious of of this unbelievable ability to coordinate right. and affect desired outcomes but there's a there's a there's a trap here obviously but but i i, I you, you kind of you kind of can imagine why people are thinking this well communist states are, can be incredibly effective um and this is true of any hardline state, communist or not. But communist states are, are China's right now is totalitarian. You know, people say, oh, authoritarian. No, it's not, it's totalitarian. Um, and so totalitarian states can mobilize very effectively um, and to any number of purposes. So that, you know, they can, they can take nat national resources, buy diesel for fishing for the, the uh, fishermen. They can do all sorts of stuff like this. Their weakness is that, um, they do stupid stuff. You know, President Obama once said, we're not gonna do the stupid Well, China does a lot of stupid and that is occurring. Um, and we're seeing with Xi Jinping with his policies. Remember, he developed, he, he came into power at the end of 2012 when he became general secretary. It was a consensual system. Um, and no Chinese leader got too much power and too much blame or too much credit because every decision was shared across the spectrum of um, political thought at the Politburo Standing Committee and the Politburo. So you make a big mistake, it doesn't really matter. Xi Jinping grabs power from everybody else, he grabs accountability. And that has all sorts of consequences. One of them is that nobody's telling him you're doing something which is really stupid. And he's been doing zero COVID, for instance. Um, and that has led China off the cliff. And that's where it's heading really, really fast right now. The other thing that makes China a little bit dangerous, um, even more so, and that is that um, Deng Xiaoping, who was generally considered to be Mao Zedong's successor, um, he lowered the cost of losing political struggles. You know, in the Mao era, if you lost a political struggle, you often lost your life. Mao said, uh, Deng said, we're done with that. You know, you lose a political struggle, you're getting a nice house in Beijing, and you have no incentive to destabilize the Communist Party because we're going to take care of you. Well, Xi Jinping, by jailing his opponents, has raised the cost of losing political struggles. So Xi Jinping knows this. He's now got total accountability, which means he can be blamed. Plus, he knows that he can lose everything. He can lose not only power, he can lose wealth, his family can be jailed, um, he can be killed. And so you've got a guy who has a different set of calculus. And that is really, really dangerous because we're not taking that into account. You know, I, as I said, I can give you a lot of reasons why it makes no sense at all for China to invade Taiwan. And it doesn't. But it doesn't matter because if you're in a political system where one guy gets to say to do everything, then you're in trouble. And if you're in a political system where that one once powerful, all powerful guy is losing power, he knows he's got very little risk because he knows he's gonna be offed anyway. So he might as well roll the dice, which means he can take us by surprise. And that's what makes China right now extremely dangerous. And this is not theoretical, Jan. In December, as China was falling apart internally, what did Xi Jinping do? He had the incursion into Arunachal Pradesh of India, and we see these increased pressure against Japan in the East China Sea around the Senkakus, see increased pressure on the Philippines, uh, in the South China Sea on certain shoals. And of course, um, they double their incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. 
And by the way, they take on our um, Air Force reconnaissance plane over the South China Sea. So this is a system that's going off the rails. And you know, you mentioned that there's all sorts of reasons why they wouldn't, according to the Western calculus, right? But there is one piece that strikes me as kind of fitting in the Western calculus, and that's when your economy is failing. And you know, that's often when people are ready for war, isn't it? That's why China can take us by surprise. Um, and that's why we know what they're preparing to do, which means they're developing the capability to do it. You can never know fully 100% intentions, but you can see capabilities, and we can see where they're doing this. And as I said, it's not just building up their military, it's trying to sanction-proof their regime, and it's mobilizing China's civilians for war. And that means we need to prepare for war ourselves. I know that that sounds drastic, but that's what they're doing. And, you know, we're Americans, so we think we're entitled to be oblivious about what our enemies say about us. And, you know, and Osama bin Laden in 1993 killed six people by detonating a bomb under the North Tower of the World Trade Center. We couldn't care less. We couldn't care less until 9-11 when Osama bin Laden killed, uh, what, 2,977 Americans in one incident. China is so much more powerful than Al-Qaeda. We can lose our country. Gordon, these are very, very strong words from you. At the moment, we are very, very focused on a very different part of the world, on Ukraine specifically. So is the CCP taking advantage of this? Well, it certainly is. Um, and here we need some context. Um, in, in August of 2021, there was the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. And uh, Communist Party propaganda was very clear that um, the United States could no longer deter China. This is something that we heard in the preceding March when China sent its then top two diplomats, Yang Jiaxue and Wang Yi, to Anchorage to meet uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. And um, Yang's opening statement was a rant, saying that you Americans can no longer talk to us from a position of strength. Then it was just words. But in the following August, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, we saw a series of propaganda come out from Beijing. And one of them was uh, said, and this was the day actually that Kabul fell. He said that uh, when we invade Taiwan, and they said when, not if. They said when we invade Taiwan, two things will happen. They said Taiwan will fall in ours and the United States will not come to help. So this is their mentality. And I think that what happened is that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin believed that the United States was not in a position to stop the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Got to remember that um, in 2021, the coalition that was arrayed against Vladimir Putin, that was the United States, the 27 nations of the European Union, and Great Britain, had an economy that was collectively 25.1 times larger than Russia's and yet we failed to stop the invasion. We failed to stop the invasion because they felt that the United States was done, that you know, there was no deterrence. Um, and so I think the Chinese are looking at this and they're taking away a couple lessons. And since we're Americans, we take away the optimistic lesson that because of the heroic resistance of the Ukrainian people, that China won't invade Taiwan because the Taiwan people will also be heroic in their resisting Chinese invaders. 
Well, that's not what China thinks about the people of Taiwan, for one thing, but I'll put that aside. But I think that what they're seeing is they're seeing the initial failure of deterrence, and they're also seeing the failure to impose sanctions which are strong enough to stop Putin in his tracks. We have sanctions that have hurt Putin, but we have not. This, this war is still continuing. Um, you know, and here we are um, on basically 11 months into it. And so that's what the Chinese see. And, and the Chinese are arrogant. So um, they're thinking, well, yeah, the, maybe the West will impose sanctions on Putin, but they won't do it to us because we're Chinese. So I think the lessons they're taking away are the wrong ones. Um, but nonetheless, those are the lessons that you see in Chinese propaganda, which is the best window into the mind of the Communist Party right now. And this part of America projecting weakness, right? We know that when that happens, um, all sorts of bad actors come out to play, so to speak, and take advantage of this. And this is what we've been seeing. Um, yeah, we, we, we see this, for instance. You know, when Putin was making these threats to use his nuclear arsenal, what happened? Well, China started making threats as well. And North Korea, for the first time, yeah, you know, there's a, you know, there's a decade worth of comments from the Kim family saying, oh, we'll nuke you. But they've always been in the context of, if you attack us, we will destroy your cities. Well, after Putin's invasion of Ukraine, for the first time ever, North Korea said, we have the right to preemptively use our most destructive weapons. So they're all taking clues from each other. You know, and people say, oh, Gordon, you're just walking around with a cloud over your head, which is raining, you know, like the cartoon characters. And my wife says that too, of course. But the point is this, you look at the facts right now and it really looks extremely dangerous. It looks like um, the period just before the Second World War. Well, it's a wreck, you know, just to talk about North Korea, I mean, it's astounding how many missiles North Korea has been testing over the, even just the last year. I mean, I think it's, you know, more in the last year than I don't know how ever many more than the they've past, ever tested than they've ever tested, perhaps. Right. I mean, it's just it's the, I don't fully understand the, the implication of that, but but it, it, it's it's bad. Well, it's basically saying that they think the Biden administration can't stop them. And, and let's look at that. Um, North Korea can only test ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons, all violations of UN Security Council sanctions, by the way, only with money. They have money because they launder it through China's banks. Every single trans, most of those transactions are dollars and every single dollar transaction in the world, other than with paper currency, every single banking transaction involving dollars clears in the city in where we are now. Matter of fact, just a few blocks south of us, they clear through New York. We know exactly what's happening. We can see all these transactions. We can stop this. We can starve uh, Kim Jong-un and we're not doing it. And the Chinese look at this and they say, well, look, we are openly money laundering, committing violation of federal law after federal law. And this federal government won't do anything about it. You know, Trump, in 2017, he, um, he had the Treasury Secretary impose Section 311 of the Patriot Act on the Bank of Dundong, small Chinese bank, laundering money for the North Koreans. We disconnect it, we basically put it out of business. But then Trump did not um, use his Section 311 powers on three of the four 
big four Chinese banks, which were also clearly laundering money for the North Koreans. The Chinese look at that and says, you're not enforcing your own law. You're a weak country. You know, by the metrics, the United States is so strong, but we're feeble. We are one of the weakest countries in the world because we will not use our powers to protect the American people from known dangers. And the North Koreans are, have a missile called the Wasong-17 that can hit any part of the United States. They test that thing and we can stop it and we're not doing it. And the American people, yeah, they should be upset at the Chinese sponsors of North Korea and North Korea, but they should really be upset at American presidents who had the means to stop this, who chose not to do so. And by the way, their last names are Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden. How much of an influence does this multi-billion dollar DC Chinese Communist Party lobby have on this type of decision making? Never been in the federal government myself. I can't tell you from firsthand experience, but I can tell you that China's a known danger. We're not doing anything about it. They're pouring tons of money into Washington. Where does that lead you to believe? Yeah, it's, it's a very effective lobby. One of the things that concerns me deeply is how much influence the Chinese Communist Party is able to wield, for example, through the TikTok app, but also through um, in other communicators, like you have one example of WhatsApp, for example, being censored at the, ostensibly at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party. But there is, there does seem to be some sort of reaction, especially in state governments, uh, to kind of block the TikTok there. But ultimately, there's millions upon millions of mil of young American kids who are on this, you know, app, which is frankly we know is terrible for them, and is controlled by the CCP, which is going to use any means at its disposal to subvert America. Yeah, there, there's two. Um, primary threats that TikTok poses to the United States. There's the one that we talk about most of the time, which is surreptitiously and illegally taking data. Um, and there was the BuzzFeed uh, revelations of last year, um, and then revelations in December about uh, TikTok uh, using location data uh, on journalists who um, were involved in the BuzzFeed um, leaks. BuzzFeed reported um, that there were 80 tape recordings from a period, I think it was September to January 2022. And, and basically these recordings showed that all of the data in TikTok was being shipped off to Beijing and that the people who worked for TikTok in the US had no access to that data. Um, and so TikTok being a powerful app, they just tracked the location of journalists. Um, so that's all illegal. And we focus in on that. But the other thing is even a more serious threat, um, and it's only recently been talked about, and that is the algorithm. The TikTok algorithm is the most sophisticated algorithm of its type. It knows what you like. It knows what you don't like. And so it can feed you stuff. And it uh, has been feeding Russian disinformation on the, on the war in Ukraine this, last year. Um, it has been glorifying drug use, pushing critical race theory. And in 2020, according to Radio Free Asia, um, the, an intelligence unit of the Chinese military based themselves in the then open Houston consulate. And from there, they were using artificial intelligence and big data to identify Americans likely to participate in violent protests. And then it was sending them through TikTok videos 
um, instructions on how to riot, which is more than subversion, that's an act of war. So TikTok has been able to do that. Um, and um, President Trump wisely banned it. Um, Biden, not to his credit, um, reversed the ban. Now they're talking about um, Oracle controlling the data from TikTok, but still that TikTok would be owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese private company. But the problem there is that it gives the federal government so much control over TikTok. So that's a potential First Amendment violation. Mm -hmm. Best thing to do is, there's only two acceptable solutions to TikTok. One of them is that you ban the app in the US. India banned it in India, so we could ban it as well. Or force a sale to a US company which controls the algorithm. Trump tried to force a sale. The sale cratered, not over price or anything that normally would uh, um, end up undermining a deal. The deal created because of the algorithm. China would not give up control of the algorithm, which shows you how important that is to Beijing. So not only does TikTok have to be sold to a U.S. company, that U.S. company has to control the algorithm. China has to be completely cut out of TikTok for that to be an acceptable solution. Well, it seems like option one, you know, we could just follow what the Chinese Communist Party does in China, right? Which That's is the issue of reciprocity. They don't allow American apps into China. Well, well they don't so, allow TikTok into China. Uh, yeah, they don't allow TikTok. They, they've, um, so why do we allow China's apps into our country? Basic issue of reciprocity. Even if they weren't trying to promote drug use, even if they weren't stealing our data, we have every reason in the world to ban it. And the fact that we don't do it shows you the influence of China's lobbying, which is what you just talked about a little while ago. Gordon, as we finish, um, we're at the beginning of a new year here. Um, there's all sorts of, people have all sorts of conjecture, you know, will China try to invade Taiwan? Will, what, will, what will happen? Will the Chinese economy collapse? What are your thoughts here? I, I, you know, I, I wrote the book, The Coming Collapse of China, 2001, said, oh, these guys are gonna be gone in 10 years. So maybe I'm not a good person to talk about predictions. Um, but what we are seeing is the international systems erode and fall apart. And, you know, thank God we made it through 2022 without even greater disasters. Um, but we're going to that place as the Chinese become more aggressive. And when we have conflicts on both ends of the Eurasian landmass, then it starts to look like global war. We're just not prepared for that. I just want to comment quickly on the coming collapse of China. You know, people have often asked me, you like having Gordon on your show. You know, Gordon was so wrong with the coming collapse of China. But I actually think you were right on a lot of the fundamentals. Um, I, I think you were, I think one area where you were wrong is you didn't anticipate how much money the West was going to put into communist China, right? Which is just, it, I think it's one of the few, it's the thing that keeps that very, very, as we've discussed, compromised economy alive. Yeah, and I didn't anticipate the 2008 downturn, mm -hmm. which I think changed a lot of um, thinking about China and which allowed more money to come in. And it, and it gave the Chinese leaders confidence that they didn't have before. Um, so yeah, for a lot of reasons, you know, I'm wrong, but um, we can see what's happening inside of China right now. And the trends show a weaker and weaker state um, it's not the mighty Communist Party. It's trying to cling to power. And when um, a hardline group like that tries to cling to power, nothing ever good happens. Well, Gordon Chang, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you so much, John, and have a safe 
2023. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Gordon Chang and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. 